This is the Podcast for Democracy, a global conversation to encourage and support your activism. Produced by OPEN, the online progressive engagement network. Today, conversations with two wonderful guests, indigenous women from different parts of the world with an important message. You'll be hearing first from Abigail Kitma of the Philippines, followed by an interview with Lucy Molenke from Kenya. Now here's your host, Executive Director of OPEN, Giovanna Negretti. Tell us who you are and where you come from, and tell us about your indigenous peoples and the region that you're in. And thank you for inviting me for this uh, podcast. So I'm Abigail Kitma. I am an uh, Ibaloy from the Cordillera Mountains in northern Philippines. So specifically, I'm from Baguio City. I'm not sure. Um, I feel like it's not emphasized among citizens of Baguio, but internationally our our city is known for many uh, human rights activists and many of them are indigenous women and um, our city is also like um, known in um, as one of like uh, the landmark cases on indigenous um, fight for um, native land is actually based uh, in uh, on in the story of our city because um, one of the, like, I guess, leaders at that time fought against the insular government of um, America uh, for uh, native rights to land. And so it became a piece of jurisprudence, I think, like globally. And then it eventually also informed, like, the Indigenous Peoples' Rights Act um, in our country. Tell me a little bit about your work, about you, and what brought you to your work. What do you do? And you're a young, beautiful, <laughs> indigenous woman from the Philippines. Tell me more about you. Okay, thank you. And that's a compliment coming from another <laughs> beautiful woman. Yeah, so I work with um, this non-government organization called Tubtuba, or its English name is um, Indigenous Peoples International Center for Policy Research and Education. It's quite long, but basically we are we advocate for Indigenous peoples' rights in different in um, relevant processes such as like the Convention on Biological Diversity, um, the UN Framework on Climate Change. Um, other human rights processes and at all levels as well. So not only internationally, but nationally and also locally. Why do you do the work that you do? Nice question, I guess. And I always reflect on it a lot. So growing up, I grew up in a city where very much acculturated. It's the land of our peoples, but uh, it's uh, very multicultural and, um, you know, there's some... we're still on the we still have lots of gaps in terms of decolonization in terms of our history and so i'm indigenous but i grew up not knowing so much about my heritage and our culture and tradition and the stories behind their struggles and when i got to college i had the opportunity to meet different people and understand more about myself uh, through the struggles of other indigenous peoples I've met with. And actually, um, I, I heard, I attended one of the talks of the former UN Special Rapporteur on Indigenous Peoples, um, Victoria Tauli Corpus, and uh, she quite inspired me. And now I'm working with her <laughs> in, in, in my current uh, um, organization. What are the biggest challenges that you have as a young indigenous activist in the Philippines? Okay, um, right. So 
um, I did mention earlier that actually the human rights movement is very vibrant, I guess, in the Philippines and as well as in the city where I live in. But there's still um, a lot of, um, uh, we still have to reach out to a lot of people to understand what our struggles are, um, what true democracy true democracy really means the political climate we're in is it's not very we are a democratic country but it's not very um conducive for you know uh, it's not that it's not as <laughs> free as as we would like it to be and there's a lots of restriction in terms of you know the freedom to, to speak and freedom of association and assembly and stuff like that so one challenge is of course the political climate you know um it, it depends on who our leaders are and how strong the um, more progressive leaders are in our in our part in our congress and in our senate and as well as the um, push from civil society and you know communities on the ground and there's a chilling effect of this new law which is an is the anti-terrorism law in the Philippines and while you know at the surface it uh, it has good intentions to control you know um, terrorist acts in the country in effect there's a lot of to be desired in the implementation and even um, like progressive topics or topics that really um, talk about, you know, the um, the plight of those who are most left behind, like most indigenous peoples, you know, um, those communities whose lands are going to be submerged because of these uh, large-scale dams, etc. If we, we talk about them or we um, point out, you know, the flaws in the implementation, um, we uh, get labeled sometimes or are suspected to be like terrorists so um, those kinds of um, like policies are have been really challenges for us and because of of these and because of the promotion of these policies the wider society there's also some kind of um, misunderstanding i guess of what the human rights movement is trying to do and so there's uh, twist um Sometimes it has come to a point where uh, when you talk about human rights, people don't want to talk about it or they feel like you're ingrateful about, you know, um, all the positive, all the developments or the efforts that have been done and et cetera, when in fact we are just trying to, um, you know, show that there's a, there are better ways of doing things and better standards and it's something that we can do with constructive dialogue. What suggestions do you have for us as activists to really help engage indigenous communities like the communities in the Philippines more effectively on progressive causes? On one hand, I think the experience of our peoples um, and other indigenous uh, peoples in the Cordilleras, the region where I live in, is that support to education and learning and the transfer of, like, knowledge including traditional knowledge is um, really important um, it empowers people and empowers in particular it empowers you know women and youth who often feel like they don't have a say on things on on political matters so that's one second is you know rec recognizing where our strengths are where the strengths are of each indigenous community and building i guess building on that 
and um, coupling it with, um, I guess, capacity building and capacity building and knowledge exchange in both ways. So I guess what I'm saying is um, uh, a lot of um, indigenous communities or at least indigenous people's organization have struggles because, you know, of, of uh, this situation and, you know, um, logistical, administrative, financial matters, but they also have their um, knowledge and opinions and experiences on the struggles they experience are uh, really important to hear out. And uh, it's important to not look at indigenous communities or organizations as, you know, not only beneficiaries of help, but also that they are also actually contributing to, you know, development and to progress. So, like, like, for example, what we have been talking in the Convention on Biological Diversity, Indigenous peoples actually also contribute to conservation and they're not only dependent on nature but also actually help in, in protecting it through various means. It may mean conscious conservation or cons conscious efforts such as reforestation or etc. but also through lifestyles and through their traditional lifestyle and traditional belief system. So for example... There are communities who avoid certain areas because they're considered as um, sacred sites. Mm -hmm. So when when you know dealing with indigenous communities or organizations, it's important to know these kinds of stuff, so that um, when we are engaging, we are building on these kinds of um, of uh, initiatives or happenings that are already in the community, rather than introducing new ideologies or mm. new stuff. You know, we all assume that maybe there's ac less access to technology. I'm not sure. Um, do people have access to the internet, <clears throat> computers in your region, and, or SMS and WhatsApp mm -hmm. or phones? Is that are those mechanisms by which you you organize that you use to to get people together, or is it traditional other traditional methodologies to get people involved in their communities on issues such as biodiversity? What do you rely on to be able, is technology a thing or is it something just not really accessible there? In the Philippines, I'm not so sure in other areas, different levels of access to technology. So I would say that in my experience in working with partner communities, the um, like much older generations, they I guess really have a um, difficulty. The elders in using technology, the younger ones and the middle generations, I guess, or the second generation leaders, they do use technology a lot. Actually, we have partners who also organize through social media. They've been posting about you know what has been happening in their communities through social media, and this reaches to their other allies and partner organizations who may have also access to more influential people who could help them. So during the pandemic, it was actually the young people who had access to like Facebook who were able to share or disseminate information on COVID in their own language. So I think that's also one uh, good development in terms of technology, at least in the experience of the Philippines. So yeah, more young people, uh, young people would have more access to technology, I guess, than older generations. And therefore, they also have they use the opportunity to translate some information into indigenous languages to share also with their community. 
That's fantastic. Thank you so much for all the work that you're doing. It's been wonderful interviewing you. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you as well. <laughs> we welcome our second guest now to the podcast, Lucy Malenke from Kenya. Can you tell us um, who you are and uh, a little bit about your indigenous peoples and maybe a bit of the history, your country, your region, and what you do? My name is Lucy Malenke. I come from Kenya. I work for an organization called Indigenous Information Network at the country level, but I also um, work with other organizations, the African Indigenous Women Organization, which I'm a founder, uh, Indigenous Women Biodiversity Network, and I'm also a co-chair of the International Indigenous Forum on Biodiversity. I'm a Maasai. Maasais come from Kenya and Tanzania. They are pastoralist communities who, uh, their main economy is livestock. But though in the past few years, uh, we have seen the economies change because of climate change, because of frequent droughts that we've had, and because of other economical issues that have impacted on indigenous people. Mainly, uh, my work uh, is on, uh, I started up as a journalist for years, and uh, after working as a journalist and seeing the flight of indigenous peoples, because the pastoralists uh, who are Maasai are part of me and other communities, uh, hunter-gatherers, minorities, were all the time I could see them being marginalized. And in, indeed, they were being marginalized in development. And that's how I got to leave journalism and rather work more closely on the, on the, with them in order to have different, uh, uh, you know, different activities that could improve their lives, like promote issues of education, health, environment, and so on. So my journey for that started some years back. I don't know to say how long, but <laughs> I think I started working in the 80s, and here I am up to now, still working with the communities and doing quite a lot of activities uh, with the women, especially on issues of capacity building. When you say capacity, is training them to improve their livelihoods, to change their, to also look at other alternative livelihoods to uh, promote education for a girl child especially, because we live in these social settings where cultures are very crucial and they are very important. And for years back, the culture uh, d defines that a girl is supposed to be married off and not really to go to school or to, to work and so on. But we managed to kind of uh, balance that in the community to let, to let the communities understand that. Starting from us, ourselves as Maasai, bringing back development home and coming to work there and being able to do something different that makes the people also feel like, well, yeah, the girl child can also do something different. So that's where our journey began. But at the same time, uh, while working as, an, uh, as a journalist and while working with the communities, I got introduced to the uh, indigenous people's uh, movement whereby uh, looking at issues of uh, of human rights, looking at issues of environmental justice, uh, sustainable development goals, and all other paradigm, uh, development paradigms that have come a long way in the past few years. And that's how we have evolved in terms of changing and being able to look at different perspectives on how development can impact on the women, and especially women for that matter, because they are the key people in the family. They are the ones who feed the world, they are the ones who hold the family. For us, uh, you know, for us indigenous peoples, women do not look like they're in the public domain, but in the private domain, they make such impact that you can't believe because 
they are the ones who even advising everybody on what uh, is to be done. How do you get women motivated to be to to be more active in terms of engaging with the issues around biodiversity or any other issues for that matter that concern the community? What are the challenges most particularly? You know, women are childbearers. They're most of the time the the women are the ones who are taking care of the home. So how do you successfully find pathways or opportunities for women to be engaged given everything that they have to do every single day, including yourself, by the way? First of all, uh, it's very important to ensure that what you want the women to do, they'll be able to, there is a benefit in it. That if you tell them to make the kitchen garden, it will help them not to go to the marketplace all the time to buy onions or to buy any vegetables. So already there you have started a, a step whereby you are telling them, if you do this, you'll be able to benefit from this. If you probably uh, make a better roof for your house, you'll be able to harvest water during rain. So you'll cut off that journey of going far away to get water. If you do this activity, it will bring you some benefit in maybe saving energy or, uh, as I said, getting food from away. So you have to start from there to see how you can educate them or rather uh, create awareness to do something that is something you know will be beneficial. Sometimes it's not even monetary cash cash, but it's a benefit that will make a difference in their own home. Because one of the things, as I said, they are the ones who provide everything. So if you, if you tell them to go to the market to buy, where will they get the money? So start from the household and see how you can make a difference there. If they make that small kitchen garden, they can, make, they can bring something to the house and they don't have to buy it. So you have to motivate them. And also, one of the other important things that uh, I realize in my work is to take them to see others, what others have done, exchange visit. Remember, these are women also probably who have not gone to school, they're illiterate, but they want to make a difference in their lives. But there are already some others who are advanced more than them through maybe living nearer people who have shown them development or maybe somebody else was there before me to, and before others to train them. So if you take them there for an exchange visit, they see the difference. They see Giovanni is doing this. Let me also try it. So then if Giovanni is succeeding, I can also succeed. So that's, that's uh, the, the exchange visits that we take them so that they see and they can be able to make a difference. And you wouldn't believe it, the women live within their own land where there is biodiversity. Remember, biodiversity is everything for them. It's the water they drink, it's the food they eat, and it's the medicine that they require for, 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 for their children because they can't go buy medicine. But they know these vegetations, they know these uh, plants that they have to use for their childbirth from the time the mother is expecting up to the child is born and so on. So that is everything to them. We grew up having the wild fruits in the forest or wild fruits in the, in the, in the grasslands and so on. So that is part and parcel of them. And even food, they know which, where to go and harvest, where to collect even wild vegetables but are important for them. So since this is very important for them, then that's where now they begin doing their own development by preparing those vegetables, getting the medicine and sharing with you and so on. And so their lives evolves from there. They know the kind of trees they have to cut down and those that they don't have to touch. They know where to go and collect for building and they know where to and how to protect them. They know the vegetation 
vegetation, they also know the wild because there are animals that are there with them, especially for the, the ones living in the wild, uh, in the protected areas and so on. So it's kind of they know already their own environment. So you must make sure that they understand it uh, even further. In fact, they are, the knowledge they have, we learn every day from them. And that knowledge is the one, you, the moment you appreciate it, respect it, it motivates them to move on. Because now they know, oh, this is actually very good. Because others will tell them, no, this is not necessary. This is being primitive and so on. It's not. It's the knowledge. That's how we have grown up. So that, that knowledge they have, if you appreciate it, recognize it, they move on and they bring more knowledge and they direct you. They tell you that they have their own uh, you know, science and they have their own uh, ways to monitor everything that they do within their community. Yes. So that's where you begin and you move on a step by step. I have one more question for you. I'm looking at you and going, you've been doing this for a very long time mm -hmm. and you have such experience and you're so wise. You know, you've been there, you, you understand your community, but not just your communities. You understand the communities around the world. You've been doing this for a very long time. We're campaigners around the world. We represent 20 organizations around the world and we, do, we use technology online to, to mobilize people, but also offline. So if you had one message to us to tell us about how to engage more people, but particularly indigenous people, how, how would you engage women and youth and others in issues like biodiversity um, or climate change? You know, one of the important things actually I've always known and I've walked around the world and seen many uh, indigenous communities and so on, is to the word listen. Listen to that person. Let that person feel that she or he is part of you and that you, you are appreciating what he's saying. Because most of the time we see somebody there and we look at him and say, this one doesn't know anything. And so when you walk in, you come and say, this computer, you should use it that way and you should do that way. Or these are the activities that you're supposed to do. No. Listen to that person first. Learn the people. Learn them very carefully. Let them tell you their priorities and also look at what priorities took you there and merge them together, listen to each other, so that you can be able to decide on how to take their, that project ahead. Because for example, if you just start a project from anywhere as you have indicated, people walk in and they tell you, we want to fix water for you. Who told you water is my priority? Even if there is no water there, maybe there is a way I do. Like we go to the northeastern, in, in most of the dry areas of our Kenya, of, of Kenya, of Africa, and you'll find people taking hot tea in the afternoon and say, these people are crazy, why are they taking tea? But that's their culture, that's their tradition, that's the way they have socialized and that's the way they live in. So the best way always is to listen to the person, learn them, and then now be able to discuss with them. Because in the moment a person anywhere, even a child, when you smile to a child anywhere, the child will be also keen to look at you, you know? And even though these days the children are told, don't smile back at somebody because this person is dangerous, that's, that's different. But you see, when you smile to that child and you start a conversation, he might bring, have more conversation with you than me who didn't smile to the child. So that's the same thing. It's a question of looking, because we are all made differently. We are all dynamics. Every community has, uh, has its own way of life has its own uh, way God have made them, and the respect and the recognition of those rights of those people or anybody is very, very crucial. 
You've been listening to the Podcast for Democracy, brought to you by OPEN, the online progressive engagement network. Please subscribe and download this podcast and tell your friends. Also feel free to rate and review the podcast, available on all podcast platforms. Find out more at the-open.net. That's the-open.net.